0: So we'll turn our attention this afternoon to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a confession of the Reformed Church, where there is a summary of the Doctrine of the Word of God, especially at this present point in the Catechism. We've been going through the Apostles' Creed, and we're flipping back a a few pages to consider uh, the article that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Having considered the last time I was here that Christ sits at the right hand of God, and rules there and governs there as the king of his church. So question answer 52. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake, and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. This is our confession. Beloved in Christ Jesus our Lord, I wonder if you remember when I did preach the last time on the opening questions and answers, I shared a story that I thought would be helpful for the kids, a comparison of sorts, the fact that Jesus is on the throne and he is our king, but that we are here in his absence as it were. I ask you to compare it in your minds to the story of Robin Hood, that is Robin Hood is there remaining loyal to the true king while King Richard is off in the wars fighting the, the holy wars. Well, if that was the case last time, that is, we were talking about a time period before Christ returned when the king is gone. This afternoon, we're talking about the return of the king. It's the moment when the, the king appears on the scene. It's the end of the story in some respects. The end of the story, but also the beginning of the story that never ends. The story where every chapter is better than the last one. As you may know, C.S. Lewis describes it in the last battle. We're talking about the advent of Jesus Christ this afternoon. Now when I use that word advent, your mind, I imagine, goes to the time of Christmas. The church traditionally calls the four weeks leading up to Christmas a time of advent. That makes sense. The word advent means coming. And so at those weeks before Christmas, we're casting our minds forward and celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ into this world as a, as a baby, the incarnation. But Advent actually isn't just a a few weeks during the year. Advent is a daily reality. Today is Advent Sunday. Tomorrow will be Advent Monday. That is, Christ did not only come once. Christ is returning. Even as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter this coming weekend, we have to be celebrating with uh, with these things in mind that Christ is not only the the one who died and was raised and ascended into heaven, but that he is the one who is going to return. He's going to return in glorious fashion on the clouds of heaven. Not as a baby this time, he's going to return as the glorious king, as the judge of the heavens and the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, as we've seen it, uh, confessed in the Catechism. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you may recall in Revelation chapter 19, there is this incredible image of Christ. One that we're not used to seeing is Christ on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, with eyes like flames of fire, with robes that have been dipped in blood, and he's riding to conquer. It's something of the picture we get this afternoon, that Christ is coming as judge of the living and the dead. When it comes to the coming of Christ, the catechism's focus is in particular on waiting. The opening part of the answer is, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await, and so we can begin simply by saying that the Catechism teaches us that as Christians, we ought to be in a posture of waiting for the coming of Christ. We need to be people who are characterized by Advent, Advent people living constantly daily under the expectation of the return of Christ. It fits well with what the Apostle Paul says in his passage as well, in particular in verse 8, which will really receive our focus this afternoon. He says what... Uh, He speaks of the Lord, the righteous judge, coming, and in that day, he will give this crown not only to Paul, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We can say that's a, a, a title that Paul gives to Christians. Christians are the ones who love the appearing of Jesus Christ, who love the appearing of the judge, and we're going to get back to that sentiment in just a while. But before we get there, I want you to notice how Paul uses the judgment of the living and the dead. If you notice, in verses 1 through 8, he refers to it twice. Once in verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And he returns to it at the end of of verse verse 8. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is, he bookends this part of his letter with reference to the coming judge. And it's helpful then for us to consider what does Christ want us to do in the interim period? What does Christ want us to be busy with as we wait, as the Catechism says it, for his glorious appearing? It may be that as Paul writes these words, he's thinking of the Thessalonian Christians. He wrote another letter to these Thessalonian Christians. And uh, he had to write two letters to them because they misunderstood what he was saying about the day of the Lord. He said the day of the Lord is coming, it's like a thief in the night. You ought to live under the expectation of Christ's return. And then what did the Thessalonian Christians do? Well, they pulled out their easy chairs, they kicked up their feet, and they called it Advent. They said, well, if Christ is returning, well, then we're going to take it easy and simply wait things out. And we'll let the world go to wherever it's going and around us, and we will simply wait for the glorious appearing of Christ. But Paul's message to Timothy and to the church today is so much different, isn't it? What does Paul do by bookending these commands? He says, in light of Christ's appearing, these are the things I want you to be busy with as the church of Christ. And the commands come fast and furious, don't they? He says, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then he describes the kind of time that we are going to encounter in between the comings of Christ. A time when people are just wanting to hear what they want to hear. They want their itching ears scratched. And they want the things to be uh, pleasant and and meaningful and affirming. And Paul says, no, preach the word. So it's a good reminder as we consider God's word regarding the judgment of Christ this afternoon for the office bearers among us. To say, in the meantime, we have to be busy with the word. We ought to be coming with the Word of God, exhorting with the Word of God, rebuking with the Word of God, preaching with the Word of God, teaching the Word of God. But of course, the corresponding command comes to all of us as people of God to say, as we wait for the glorious appearing of Christ, we need to be people of the Word. We need to be hearing the Word. We need to be busy with it. We need to be guided by it. We need to be immersed in it. We need sound teaching, Paul says. We don't just want to go where our Our ears are tickled. We want to hear sound teaching. We want faithful preachers. We want the word of God to be at work in our hearts. We want to be committed to the gospel. As we wait for the glorious appearing of Christ, we need to be people who are committed to the gospel of Christ. Today and tomorrow. However long it takes before Christ returns. You may have heard this quote attributed to Martin Luther. It's actually not true that he said it. But we'll just put it in Martin Luther's mouth anyway. He said, if Christ were to return tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. If Christ were to return tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. He says, I'm still going to be busy with the things that need to be done today. And so that's in a sense what Paul is saying here. As we think about the glorious return of Christ, we're not going to put up our feet like the Thessalonian Christians. We're going to be busy with the things of God. We're going to be busy with the Word of God. Paul says, keep planting trees. Just keep busying yourself with the Word of God. You see, he describes Christians as those who love the appearing of Christ, but you're not going to love the appearing of Christ if you have no business with Him now. If you don't love Him today, then do you think you will love Him as He enters into this world as the judge and as the king? How do you await Him eagerly? How do you love His appearing? The Apostle Paul would have us believe that it's by rooting ourselves and grounding ourselves in the Word of God. Because that's where we encounter Christ, isn't it? That's where we see him now by faith. It's in the word of God. And so it's good for us to ask the question this afternoon, are we waiting eagerly? Are we waiting eagerly for the return of Christ? Is it something you think about? And Paul says, Christians are those who love the appearing of Christ. And the Catechism says, if you are a Christian who confesses the truths of the Apostles' Creed, you are waiting eagerly for the return of Christ. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Perhaps we have a different problem than Thessalonian Christians. They were lazy. The Apostle Paul had to address their laziness. But for us, our different problem is this. We're running around like crazy. We're so busy, absorbed in here-and-now pursuits that we forget the eternal future that we have. We forget the reality that one day the Lord will break into this world and will usher in the new world. We're so busy building up kingdoms here on earth, as we heard this morning, that we've forgotten that we need to be reoriented to the future, that Christ is coming back as judge. We need to be reengaged in the fight. Notice how Paul describes the life of the Christian here as well. Paul says it's like a, a, a good fight. It's a race. It's a marathon. You've got to put on your boxing gloves. The Apostle Paul uses that image elsewhere. He's like a boxer training and beating his mo- body into submission. We need to be reminded that the life of a Christian is a grueling marathon, that it's a challenge. We need to keep the faith, the Apostle Paul says. And part of keeping the faith, he says, is keeping our eyes on the horizon, realizing that Christ is coming. So let me lay this on your heart this afternoon. Does your life reflect the fact that you are waiting for the coming of Christ as King and as Judge? Do you love the appearing of Christ? Well, so far I've focused on preparing for the coming of Christ, but actually that's not the way the catechism deals with this question at all. It's striking and significant, isn't it, how the catechism frames the question about this article of the Apostles' Creed. Ask this question what comfort is it to you? I want to focus on that in the remainder of the, the message. Focus on what comfort is it that Christ is coming as judge? Why should the final judgment bring us? Comfort. Well, the Catechism gives us a very important answer at the very beginning when it says this. It says, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await the judge from heaven. The Catechism reminds us that when Christ returns, it will be the end of sorrow and persecution. It will be finished. The good fight will be finished. The race will be run. That grueling, difficult, challenging life which, as we hear in the baptismal form, is no more than a constant death. That's, that will be the end for all of us. Some of us will go to be with Christ before then. Perhaps Christ will return in our lifetime. And that will be the end. It will be the end of our sorrow and persecution. I wonder if you think of the coming reality in those terms. There is a day that is coming. When all things will be set to rights. We will be living in glorious fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There will be no sorrow and persecution. The Apostle Paul gives us some great hints in his passages to the life that he had to lead as one who was called to preach the gospel. He encourages Peter or Timothy in this passage as well that he's going to have to endure suffering. And Paul, as he writes this letter, is actually in prison in Rome. He's in prison in Rome. It's not long after he writes this letter that he gets hauled uh, before the emperor Nero, and he's executed in the city of Rome. Perhaps he's, he's crucified or burnt at the stake, he's executed in the city of Rome, he knows what lies ahead. When we think of the second coming of Christ like this, then the words of the catechism ring true, don't they? Then it resonates, then we can say, yes, I lift up my head and eagerly await." We get tired, don't we, of the sorrows and heartaches of this life. We get tired of standing at the graveside of a loved one. We get tired of coming to, to funerals and seeing loved ones with an empty place. When life's experiences and life's brokenness bears down upon us, and we realize that this life is no more than a constant death, then we cry out with the Apostle Paul, I love the appearing of Christ, because it will mean the very end of all the sorrow and persecution of this world. Because we can't wait to be free from this sorrow suffering. That's part of where the catechism and roots, the comfort that we find in this life. All the things that have pained you will be no more. There will be no more sorrow in that place when Christ returns. There will be no more death. Think of the glorious vision that John gives us in Revelation when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's the image as though he comes with his handkerchief. And he wipes those tears away, and there will never be any more tears of sorrow, only tears of joy. When we think of the coming of the Christ, we ought to be thinking of the end of sorrow and persecution, the ushering in of perfect, infinite, never-ending joy. But up until now, I've avoided something significant, because the Catechism is speaking about something in particular. That Christ, Christ is coming in a particular way, isn't it? It says he's coming as judge. He's coming as the judge of the living and the dead. The scripture makes it abundantly clear that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will be able to claim ignorance. No one will escape the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus himself taught us. Listen to Matthew 12 verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. In Revelation 20, verse 12, John writes, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what had been done. Those are sobering passages, aren't they? And those aren't the only ones. I could read a whole bunch of them. And they prompt a difficult question. How in the world could that be a source of comfort? How in the world can we look to the coming of the judge of the heavens and the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, with comfort? I wonder what the results would be if I did a poll with you this afternoon and I gave you a few options as to how you feel about the coming of Christ as judge. I said you could put comfort down or fear or anxiety. How many of you would choose comfort? We are, as Reformed Christians, Very aware, I hope, I think, of our sins. We are aware that we are sinners. We are aware also that sinners cannot come into the presence of a holy God in and of themselves. So when we think of the coming of Christ as judge and we're being told that we have to give an account for every careless word that, uh, that we utter, which would you choose, comfort, fear, or anxiety? You might be inclined to think as you read these passages that comfort is the last word you use to describe how you feel, but the Catechism teaches us how we can find comfort in the coming of Christ as judge, and it's beautiful, it's beautiful uh, because it explains just how we ought to think. I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, here it comes, who's coming? The very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse. For me, it is the key to the comfort is looking to see who is this judge who is coming down from heaven. Who is this judge who is coming to judge the world with righteousness and equity? He is my Savior. He's the one who already went to the cross for my sake. He is my friend. He is my brother, as Brother Koenig so beautifully said at the beginning of the service. The judge is not the one who will condemn me, he is the one who has already saved me. From my sins you will know in that moment that you are absolutely secure in Christ Jesus our Lord see you will be able to point to the judge as he comes down in the clouds of heaven and remember the glory of the king the glory of the king as he comes down with his radiant eyes and his sword coming out of his mouth you will be able to point to the judge and say that is my savior I'm with him He already paid the price for my sins, but it's even more glorious than that, because you know what the judge is going to say, he's with me, she's with me, I already paid for those sins. I already covered over those iniquities, those transgressions. I already took on the weight of God's wrath against those sins. He won't be ashamed in that moment either to call us brothers and sisters. That's the wonderful truth that Hebrews teaches us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So the judge will come from heaven and he will say, that is my brother and you are my sister." He will open the book of life, as we heard from Revelation chapter 20. He will open the book of life and he will read the names that are written there. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is, if you have a relationship of faith in Christ Jesus, your name is written in that book of life and it can never, ever be expunged. It will be opened up. It will be read there. William Hollander. That's what my name will say. Insert your own name. It is there in writing. Recorded in the book of life. And so as we think on the the coming of Christ as judge, we can't forget the wonderful passages of scripture that we've emblazoned in our hearts and our minds. Passages like Isaiah 43 verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Or Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far do I remove your transgressions from you. It doesn't mean they're forgotten. Remember, God can't forget, but that God won't hold them against us. They're no longer on our account. They can't bring us any more shame because they've been forgiven already. The Apostle Paul writes those triumphant words in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a present reality. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It will be true as well on that day when Christ returns and we stand before His judgment seat. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where's the focus going to be in that moment when Christ returns? Not on your sins. Not on your sinfulness, but on the glory and the radiance of Christ our Lord. You see, in that day you will know more fully than you have ever known just how much you've been forgiven. You will know more fully then than you will ever have known just how much it cost to forgive your sins. In that day you will not be thinking of your sin at all. You will be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus You will too be too busy singing the praises of your Savior to worry about every careless word that you have uttered. You see, you can love the appearing of Christ as Judge because every sin has been nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord! Christ has already clothed you with His perfect righteousness. You have the obedience of Christ. You see, the final judgment is not about your sins. The final judgment is about the glory of Jesus Christ. It is about the glory of Jesus Christ. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of the Apostle Paul writing about himself in his letters. You notice how he doesn't hide anything when he writes about himself? The story of his his ravaging the church before the road to Damascus experience? It's just recorded on the pages of Scripture. You might think Paul would have asked. Maybe he just... Leave that part out. It doesn't make me look very good. Instead, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What's Paul doing in that moment? Is he glorying in his sin? Definitely not. Does he regret his sin? Absolutely. Why does he bring it up? To his shame? No, to the greater glory of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. All glory be to Christ. You see, the same is true of every sinner saint. Just think of the people in the lifeline or the family line of Jesus. You ever go through the family line of Jesus as it appears in Matthew, and you get those unusual names that appear, in particular in connection with the women, and you read of names like Judah and Tamar? And you recall in your mind, chapter 38 of Genesis, that sordid story I've mentioned from this place before. Or David and Bathsheba. David takes another man's wife by force. He has her husband killed. It's recorded on the pages of Scripture. You might think, well, what's its purpose there? Because David wasn't forgiven? Because Judah or Tamar weren't forgiven? Because God wanted to shame them for centuries afterwards? No! To the greater glory of God. Why was Dave Slaney so eager to share his testimony with us? To glory in his past sins. No, to glory in the risen Savior who rescued him from a life of death. Why should you share your testimony? To glory in the Savior who forgives you your sins. And has rescued you from eternal wrath and death. You see, what's going to be on display when Christ returns is the overwhelming forgiveness of our God. We will know in that moment more than ever before how gracious and how loving and how wonderful and how beautiful He is. That's why we can love the appearing of Christ. Because all glory will go to him. Just think in that moment of the myriads and myriads of those he has saved over the history of the world standing before his throne, testifying to the power of his blood, testifying to the power of his sacrifice. On that day, you will fall flat on your face in worship of the risen king, of the judge of the heavens and the earth. I can't wait stand before His throne and know how much He loved me. Know how much He loved me. I can't wait to stand before His throne and say, Christ Jesus, you came into the world to save sinners, and I am the foremost. All glory be to Christ. Can you love the appearing of Jesus as judge? Can you love the appearing of Jesus as judge? Because in that moment, He will receive the glory that He is due. That's comforting, isn't it? It's comforting to think that in that moment you will be overwhelmed with love for your Savior. That the Judge who is coming is the very same person who before humbled himself to death in your place. That's not the only reason to love the appearing of Christ or to find comfort in His judgment. The Catechism also teaches us to find comfort in this. It says, He will cast all His and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. He'll cast all his and my enemies into condemnation. Remember, note this, all his and my enemies. That is, it associates our enemies with Christ. He's not talking about your petty differences. He's talking about those who have oppressed the church and so have oppressed Christ. We're still concerned with the glory of Christ. The Apostle Paul, you can think of his own example, experienced hatred for the sake of Christ. He would face floggings and stonings and and beating with rods, and hunger, and thirst. He experienced the hatred that comes to those who belong to Christ, and we have brothers and sisters in the world today who are experiencing hatred for the sake of Christ. Even as we worship here in freedom this afternoon, there are brothers and sisters who are huddled in secret rooms, and perhaps there are brothers and sisters who are being hauled off as we speak to face imprisonment, or death, or the loss of their livelihoods, or their homes. It have experienced hunger and thirst and homelessness for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. And at times it can feel as though evil is winning. We sang about that, didn't we, in Psalm 94. We can ask the question, where is God? What's He doing? Why does evil seem to triumph? How in the world can people trample upon the poor and the helpless in the Ukraine? How can Russian soldiers execute innocent civilians? How can he let wicked people get away with what they're getting away with? How can he permit abortion? How can he permit abuse of children and women? We think, why doesn't he do anything about it? The psalmist Asaph felt that way in Psalm seventy three. He looked around himself at the world in which he lived and he thought, Where is God? It seemed as though the worst people in the world were having the most success. Things were going perfectly fine. He was envious and bitter until he discovered the secret. Psalm 73, stanza 16, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He found comfort in the end. The Catechism is teaching us to find comfort in the end. The Apostle Paul too, in our passage, finds comfort in the end. Have a look at verse 14 if you have your Bibles open. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Where does he find comfort? The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Verse 18, he expresses confidently, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see, the coming of Christ as judge will be the final and full rescue from all evil. The final judgment will mean the righting of every single wrong that has ever been perpetrated in the history of the universe. Full justice will be paid. Do you see the comfort in that? There is justice coming. God is not ignoring anything that happens on this earth. Here is the answer to all the cries of injustice that go out around the globe. Where is God? He is coming. Where is God for people like Putin? He is coming. And he is coming as a judge. Everything is going to be set to rights when Christ returns. That's the truth. Some of you are, like me, fans of Lord of the Rings. The rest of you should be. There's a powerful moment in the return of the king, the very end. You have to understand it's this battle between good and evil. And good has won. The ring of power is destroyed. Dark Lord Sauron is defeated, and one of the hobbits, Sam Gamgee, he wakes up from sleep. He's surprised he survived, and he sees the white wizard Gandalf, and he asks a profound question. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue because Christ is coming as judge. Evil will be fully and finally dealt with. Everything that is broken will be restored. Everything that is sick will be healed. The curse will be rolled back. Everything sad will come untrue. The world will be made new again. Don't you love the appearing of Jesus? Every time you are tempted to ask the question, or every time you ask the question, where is God? Remind yourself of this. He is coming. There will be no injustice that is not set to rights. Justice and righteousness will roll like a river. Christ is coming. There's more comfort, yeah. The Catechism teaches us some more. Christ will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Let's not forget the future. We can't forget the future. We're so time bound, aren't we? We forget so easily that the end isn't the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of the never ending story. Paul, as he writes these words, he's near death. This is one of his last letters. He's old. He's been battered by life. He's nearing the end. He writes very vividly, verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's speaking about his death. His departure is his death. And we're expecting him to say, The end. The end. That's a good place to stop. I've reached the end of my life. I ran the race. I fought the fight. I tried my hardest, and now that's it. The end. As a comedian once said, uh, life is tough and then you die. But he doesn't end there, does he? He doesn't end there, he continues. He says in verse 8, henceforth. It's a beautiful word. I don't know about you, I've never used it before. The word henceforth. What does it mean? It means from that time forward. It's a wonderful thing to say, isn't it? When you're talking about death. We're accustomed to thinking death is the end. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm going to die. And henceforth, from that point forward, it's just the beginning. Henceforth, death is not the end. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the difference. There is life beyond the end. There is a new beginning. Paul writes with certainty that there is something to come. Henceforth, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul writes that when the judge comes, he's got this crown of righteousness, it's waiting for him. You have to know that crowns were these things that were given when you ran a race in the ancient world. You ran the Olympics, you got a crown at the end. Or you had a wrestling competition, you had a crown at the end. So the Apostle Paul says, I finished the race, I, I fought the fight, and now there's a crown that's waiting for me from the judge. He's going to award me with the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. And now I want you to notice how Paul speaks about it. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Laid up for me, isn't that amazing? It's waiting for the Apostle Paul. That's what it means when something is laid up for you. It's not like Paul's going to get there and then Jesus is going to cast around for some kind of crown, scrambling to see what he needs to give the Apostle Paul. Though he says, Jesus, Christ already has my crown laid up for me. It's waiting for me. It's got my name on it. It's been sized for me. It's been placed on layaway. I just need to show up. And Christ will give it to me. It's a wonderful little detail, isn't it? Because that's not the way that races work. It's not the way fights work, is it? In our world, you've got to win the race before you have the crown set aside for you. If you're going to get a trophy, they don't put the name of the winning team on there until after the tournament is over. Paul says, my crown of righteousness is already waiting for me. It's got my name emblazoned on it. How could it be? Because of the judge who's coming. Because the judge is the very same person who before submitted himself to the wrath of God for my sake. Because it's not about you. It's not about you running the race well, or fighting the fight perfectly. It's about the Saviour who already ran the race before you. The one you're fixing your eyes on, as you run the race yourself. Christ has already won the victory. Christ has already won the victory. As we race, as we struggle, as we fight, We need to remember that Christ has already won the victory. There's a crown for you. A crown of grace. It's been laid up. It's got your name on it. It's the perfect size. It's the name that's been written in the book of life. That's what it means when you are one with Christ by faith. It means that your future is guaranteed. It means that when the judge comes, you will see him as the most beautiful, beautiful person you've ever seen. As your savior, as your brother, as your friend, as your redeemer, the son of God. You'll be able to say, I'm with him. That's the hope you have for the coming judgment. That's Christ-exalting, Biblical hope, and it's comforting, isn't it? Do you love the appearing of Christ Jesus? Are you comforted to know that Christ is coming back? Maybe he'll come back today. Maybe he'll come back tomorrow. Maybe he won't come back in our lifetime, but he is coming. And In that moment, everything will be good. Everything will be at rest. Everything will be full. Everything will be perfect. Amen.